Welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week. Please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at Austin Art Talk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Two years on from our first interview, episode 18, which I highly recommend listening to before you proceed with this one, I recently had the privilege of a tour of the new home and art studio of Roy James and the chance to further the dialogue and talk more about Roy's successful career, where he finds himself now, and where he might be headed. And just like in our first conversation, there is no lack of vulnerability on Roy's part as he shares his thoughts about being in an in-between place, settling into his space and finding new rhythms and inspiration, and contemplating the necessity to take his whole life and artwork to the next level. We notably discuss the likely reasons for his success, pricing artwork, portraiture, the art market, and we go a little more in-depth about loving more deeply and how that manifests in his life. Here is Roy. Roy, thanks for being on my podcast again. You're welcome. We just had a wonderful tour of your home and studio, your new home and studio that we did not exist two years ago when we did our first interview. No. I know it's been a long, long journey. It's been two years, man. Yeah, it was March of 2018 when we talked. Yeah, I thought the house was probably going to be finished in about three or four months. Oh, really? (laughs) Just went on and on. And we're also talking now because you have some work up for the first time in Austin in, I think, 10 years at Davis Gallery uh, Spectrum. And I would encourage anyone who's hearing this before February 22nd to go by and see that beautiful work. You know, when we talked last, and I would encourage anyone who is not familiar with Roy, we cover in depth your story, your origins, your career up until two years ago. We go pretty in depth into that. Uh, So I'd encourage anyone who hasn't heard that to go back and listen to that first, because we're going to go forward from two years ago till now and also look into the future. So at the end of our last interview, you were talking about inspiration that was even existing before your new space existed, anticipating the new space, anticipating creating work in your new space. You were thinking about your health, you were thinking about songwriting, you were thinking about how to love more deeply. You were very optimistic and excited. 
<laughs> about everything. So I'm just wondering how the last two years have gone and how any of those things have developed for you. Well, it's been an adventure, that's for sure. Um, it was, you know, I would describe it as a really tough two years. Hmm. You know, it was, I think the process of building this space took a lot out of me that I had not realized it was going to be that demanding. And, you know, I, that part of it was that it just took so long. I really thought it was going to be done much sooner than it was. I think, you know, I think we were over a year behind, you know, and we had things happen. People got really sick and they had to deal with that. And um, so and the building just went much slower than I thought it would. So, you know, when I reflect back on those two years, the last two years, I just think, boy, it was just really intense in terms of the demand and it was completely unexpected. And even when, once I moved in, you know, like we got to the place where I could move into the house, I was just recovering, you know, it was just exhausting. And, you know, it took time for me to get familiar with the house itself and really feel comfortable, start to develop routines in this space, which I feel like I'm still doing. You know, it's, I moved in November 20th, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm still just figuring, you know, how I move through this space. It feels really comfortable. It feels like home, but I haven't lived in it long enough to really know it very well. So I, I just feel like the demand of building this space was really intense, a lot, a lot more intense than I'd expected it to be. And it's, it's taken a lot out of me physically and emotionally, you know, and that I feel like I'm still recovering from. Yeah. yeah. It seems like then you'd really have to have a long-term view to be able to make that sacrifice because I'm sure that it affected your art making yeah. too. I would say that I, I had no long-term view. I had um, naivete is what oh, I had. Okay. You know, just, <laughs> I had never done it before and didn't know what to expect. And I'm fairly a positive person in general. And so I thought it would be, you know, oh, this is going to happen very easily. And I couldn't believe the amount of things that, that came up that kind of slowed it down. Hmm. And I'm grateful for the naivete because I honestly think that if I'd known, I don't know that I would have done it. Oh, you wow. Know, it's one of those things that I, and I think I, it's because I, I wouldn't have had the courage you know, uh, to, to kind of go through. I'm, I'm not somebody who enjoys pain, you know, yeah, or has a high threshold for it. And so if I know oh, it's going to be painful, my, my instinct is, okay, then I don't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> right. But you even at the time when we talked two years ago, you said it was a leap of faith. I mean, that's what I oh, called the, uh, the and, interview. Yeah, and it still is. You know, I feel like I'm still in that space of wanting to land, you know. I think the more comfortable I get in the space and the more I see how I can really use it, the more I feel like I'm, I'm arriving, you know. But that is still there. You know, I'm still there. I still have to, you know, I have to uh, make this work now. So part of me of like coming out of the space where I was working so hard just to make this place happen. And it's, it's really interesting. It, it felt like it took all my resources, you know, hmm. to make it happen. It literally said, I, sometimes I have this sort of metaphysical view of life. And I think like there's a... a a question and a response. And the question for me was, you know, can I do this? And the response was, can you, you know, and the way the universe forms a question is it just starts taking everything saying, if you really want this, you got to make it happen. Mm. That was part of it. You know, I, I, 
I, you know, my father was this depressionary guy. He was born in the mid-1930s, and he was always afraid of financial insecurity. You know, he was always expecting the worst thing to happen and, you know, holding on real tightly to his money because he thought he would need it for an emergency. And ultimately, he would. And I think I, you know, inherited a lot of that sort of thinking about calamities or things that could happen that could undermine what you're trying to do. And so I feel like the challenge for me has been really confronting those voices, you know. And um, I think we spoke about it in my last interview that the most challenging thing I've had uh, in becoming a successful artist has been dealing with the voices in my head that say, I can't do this, or you don't deserve this, or... And you can't you, make that much money or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, you're a fraud or something oh, wow. like that. I mean, just and these, these voices come up and I'm like, God, where's that coming from? Why do I have to deal with that? And so I realize you build a space like this and, and you, you can't afford to have that kind of thing going on in your head. So it's been a real practice for me to, mm. to, you know, see them happening and confront them and say, you know, kind of brush them aside and, and try to reframe the thing in a positive light. Or just a lot of times for me, I just need to go, Hey, look, let's, let's just look at your history here. Yeah. You know, here are all these things that reinforce that you do belong here. You know, what was it? I just saw Parasite last night. Mm. Have you seen that Mm-mm. movie yet? Well, you know, it's kind of a class structure thing that takes place in this Korean family. I don't don't want to ruin it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but there is a scene where one of the guys, is he's he's a young man who's basically conned his way into this wealthy person's household. And he's a tutor, or he's posing as a tutor, but he's, and he's looking out the window and he sees all these wealthy people in the lawn and he asks himself, do, and he looks at his girlfriend, who's the, the daughter of the rich person, and he says, do I belong here? You know, I mean, look at all these people. They're all beautiful. Do, do I belong here? And that's kind of one of the things for me, you know, it's like um, mm. arriving at this place, and it's so comfortable to have, it would have been so comfortable to have stayed in my old house, which was smaller, and it felt claustrophobic, and I'd felt like I, I'd outgrown it, but I was real comfortable there. Yeah. You know? and financially, it was real easy. And, you know, to move into this space, it's, uh, yeah, it presses a lot of buttons, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so now, so you've built this new life, in a sense, this new space, this studio that has a lot of potential, but it's all reliant on your art, and you mm-hmm. and like we talked about in your first interview, you had a you had a lot of doubts throughout your life about the life of an artist, or is that even a good choice, or yeah. am I going to end up under a bridge or something? You know, does do you feel even more pressure now to sell to create certain things, or I mean, can you <clears throat> keep it a pure creative practice that's mm. not? pulled into this kind of money-making thing, you know? Yeah, it, to me, it has never been one or the other. It's always been kind of finding a balance between the two because the reality is, you know, in order to stay solvent and to um, pay the expenses, which are really high here, but they've always been pretty high. You know, I have to look at art as a business. You know, it, it's just I have to look at that. I have to examine marketing and how does that work for me. And since I don't work with galleries in general... It really is up to me. And so 
I and and there's a part of me that has naturally felt comfortable in that space. And then there's the other part where you know I know when it could start to get to just feel like oh I'm just working now, you know. And then I I go well time go in there and start playing around, you know, and enjoy it in a different way. And so I just try to find the balance between the two, you know. I I try to be creative and and carve space out for creativity, but I also look at it as a business, you know, um, I need to make sales, you know, and that's just a matter of fact, you know, it's like a, one of the things about the space is I wanted to elevate my work into, I don't know, a higher level of creativity for me. But the irony is that it's an expensive space and, you know, you've got to look at it as a business as well. And the, the hope for me is that eventually I can convert that pure creativity into something that is producing income for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder for artists listening that, let's say, have great work, they've been at it for a long time, but they haven't quite figured out how to sell their work or they're struggling. I mean, I just, you know, like whenever you come up with in a conversation when with anyone that I'm talking to in Austin, it's like, I think of you as like one of the most successful artists in Austin. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you attribute that to? Like, how can you share anything about your mindset or things that you figured out that would help anyone else kind of understand like how do you get to a point where you can sell your work the way you do all over the world be able to create this life i mean can you can you diagnose that in a way that would help people maybe pull something from that that they could use for themselves i can't reduce it to some sort of formula i think one of the things that really benefited me early on was i you know i genuinely had talent you know and i've known that since i was a little kid and i think we spoke about this in my last interview but it was there you know this ability to see something and then produce it on you know two-dimensionally very natural for me and do it at a pretty high level just naturally, you know, like I've never been to art school, like a formal art school. I had some lessons, but I've never been to a formal art school. I've just kind of done it. So I'm, I had a confidence about my ability. I think that was one thing. And I think another thing for me was, and I think this had to do with not going to art school too. I didn't have a, a lot of depth in my um, art vocabulary. And I think people who are kind of at that level of art appreciation uh, generally will be responding to the most obviously beautiful things. And to me, the Renaissance and, you know, uh, beautiful landscape painting. Um, and I didn't get contemporary work at all. I just mm-hmm. did not get it. And that's something I think art school would have helped. Hmm. But just looking at it, it was beyond, you know, my capacity to, to really understand. So what I, I responded to was what I wanted to produce. And what I wanted to produce was very marketable. So, you know, I had the talent, I had the skill, and I was producing. Naturally, my inclination was to produce these things that were beautiful. And um, they weren't that difficult to sell. You know, when you had that combination, it wasn't. I literally took paintings without any intention of getting a sale to get framed somewhere. And when I went back, they said people wanted to buy them. Yeah. So there's that sort of natural, um, you know, combination of something that's marketable and a real skill to produce it. Then when I went to abstract work, it was the same thing. I was just drawn to to the beauty in abstract painting. 
And so that's what I wanted to reproduce in my work. I was looking for creating that sort of moment of transcendence and that I experienced when I was looking at something beautiful. I wanted to put that into my work, have that experience myself with my work, and then just believe that other people would too. So, um, and I think they did, you know, and I think that led to the success I had too. And I think that there, I've, there's always something in my nature, there has always been something in my nature that you didn't have to tell me, you know, go do this, go do that, go practice this. I just did it because I wanted to do it. You know, I, I wanted to learn, I wanted to develop that visual vocabulary. So I went out and just started checking out books over at UT and poured through hundreds and hundreds of them. And my eyes would just start to understand, oh, that's how composition works. That's how tone works. That's how color works in a natural sort of way. And I think that's key to being successful, too, is that there's this drive and motivation I have, like even building this house. Why? You know, I could have been happy in in my old house. Why would I want to do this? Because part of me had sort of hit this level, this plateau in my work, in my life, and just felt like, you know, I believe I can do better than this. And that would drive me into the next thing. And um, I think that's had a lot to do with my success as well. You know, that in my family of coming from a father who, you know, was very deprivation-oriented, I didn't want to settle for that. You know, I wanted I wanted to go beyond it. And so, and I've always wanted to, and that's just in my nature, so. Yeah. Do you think it's also important, like, maybe, I don't know how much in the beginning this was, like when you had your ex-wife, who's very outgoing, helping you sell work. I mean, do you feel like it's important to find advocates or find people that have different skills than you to help you sell your work? I mean, has that been part of the strategy, do you think? Or I mean, you haven't been doing it all yourself, Yeah. Right? Well, initially I did. Okay. And, um, yeah, and that part of the, the sort of the character trait that I just described to you, that would hit that wall. Like anything else, it would hit this wall of where I felt like I was doing everything I could, and I'd hit the wall of what I could produce because of that. And I'm a real control sort of person, so it's not easy for me to say, well, get, get help, you yeah. know. And trust someone. And honestly, you know, I have, uh, you know, Nathan, who's my assistant, who's been working for me. He's also my nephew. And I've been thinking about, you know, kind of just kind of procrastinating getting somebody to come in and help me in my shop. And my brother just called me up out of the blue and said, Nathan's going to be going to school at UT and he needs to do some work study. Would you consider hiring him? So I thought about it and I hired him part-time. And so it was kind of that circumstance that threw me into actually hiring somebody. My brother calling me up and saying, would you do this for, yeah, yeah. for your nephew? I don't know how long it would have taken for me to do it if, if it, I was just waiting for, you know, I probably would have been bleeding. My hands would have been bleeding. <laughs> and I would have been, Okay, maybe you should hire somebody. Now. Yeah. But, um, but then, you know, having him work for me and seeing the power of, you know, having somebody taking care of so many other things that... Uh, were distracting me. Hmm. That just leads me to think, well, what else? I've hired people to sell my work. I've got a full, not a full-time, but somebody who I've been working with for 20 years is like a financial advisor and a business manager. Right. And Yeah, I remember we talked about her, how you came across her in the first episode. Um, what? Where do you find that most of your sales come from? Is it just that you've built up this reputation over many years that you're out there and that people know you? I mean, 
that has a lot to do with it. I think I've sold enough work that people are just encountering it. You know, somebody will call me and say, I saw your work at my friend's house, or um, we were at this hotel and your work was on the wall. And so I get a lot of contacts that way. And I've built up a, you know, large email list and I've, you know, doing this social media thing and building those formats up as well. Mm -hmm. And then I'll just get calls out of the blue. People from other parts of the world just, you know, we're working on a project and we need some pieces and we saw your work. And then I go through the long process of working with them to, you know, install some work in in their space or, you know, commission something for somebody Mm -hmm. in a specific space or something like that. That's in general, that's what it's been. Now, when I had a gallery, of course, they were producing sales as as well uh, when I was working with galleries. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm not doing that nowadays except for this Davis Gallery thing. Yeah, when we talked last time, you had just, I think, ended your relationship with Laura Rathie, and you were kind of nervous about that, too, at that time. Like, how has that played out, do you feel like? Well, you know, it was kind of an, an integrity thing. That I took a hit on that because she was producing income, but I didn't like the way I was being treated. And it really came down to, you know, uh, me feeling like I can't allow myself to be in a relationship like this. As a matter of why I do art to begin with, to not be in relationships like that. You know? Yeah. And so... I, you know, it was something that just as a matter of integrity, I had to say no to. So there was like a financial hit I took, but I could at least look at myself in the mirror, you know, and feel okay about that. But I also think that the whole landscape of gallery um, representation and the traditional model is changing dramatically. And I I don't have a lot of answers for that. You know, Hmm. I am, you know, examining it going, okay, what's going on here? This is definitely changing. And I feel like what's something that's happening in the art world is kind of what happened in the music industry. You know, now in music industry, you're selling something for ten bucks or five bucks or whatever, and it's digitally reproducible perfectly, so it's easy to steal. But art is a very different thing. But I think social media and the access that it creates is just flooding the market with lots of artists. You know, I have friends who do; um, they're in the photography industry and they talk about how their industry changed dramatically with the advent of you know cell phones and the the smartphone camera and suddenly and you would know this all these people with no talent suddenly don't think that they need a professional yeah it's good enough yeah Mm -hmm. and you get a lot of mediocrity and i think that's happening in art you have social media is just creating this outlet that everybody can flood with images and so you're just kind of weeding through all these Mm-hmm. mediocre artists, but every now and then you discover the one that has the real talent. But um, I think that's creating a space where a lot of people who might have normally spent more money on going through a gallery and that expertise, now they can just go, hey, I like that painting, call that artist up, buy it, ship it to me, you know, and there's no concern of uh, their background or whether they can do anything else or whether there's consistency in their work or not or, you know, nothing it's just Mm -hmm. so that's changing it's very curious to me you Mm. know and it's also becoming global you know you're seeing a lot of international artists reaching into american markets and the other way around you know i've sold work in other countries because of social media so i'm kind of at this place like how do i use this i'm i'm i feel a little threatened by it but i feel real excited about it too you know i look at it and go wow this kind of new territory how do i harness this how do i you know, create my identity in this space and 
bring people into my world, you know, and how do I start thinking in terms of the power of what I have in my pocket to have somebody connect, you know, pick up this phone and take a photograph and post it real quickly and, and have people connect with not just the artwork, but the artist, you know, mm-hmm. digital is just so interesting to me right now. A lot of things that are happening there. So what you're saying makes me kind of wonder about the difference between the market. Like you said, it's flooded with work and people are just kind of finding whatever resonates with them. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is, speaks to people just going with their instincts as opposed to like if they were going through a gallery, it might be more about like this kind of like intentional investment in an artist or yeah. a work that might appreciate in the future. I mean, maybe is that, do you think that kind of thinking is fading or is this more just about impulse and what you like? I don't know. Sometimes it seems like, um, you know, uh, Henry Ford said he wanted to put a model T in every house. And, you know, I think the, the digital age is ushering a model Lisa in every house, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's democratizing art, you know, where it's been a real exclusive thing. Uh, it's it's just saying anyone can have it. And that kind of turns me off. Like, mm. I, I love modern architecture and I love modern art. And when I started to get into it, um, you know, just in, in terms of my own evolution was in the late 90s. That's when I really started to explore contemporary work and um, get excited about it. And in terms of the design movements that were happening at the t- time, they had this whole movement called the shabby chic thing, which yep. was like so, so repulsive, you know. But um, <laughs> but there was like a whole decade where that was it, you know. Yeah, it just felt so refreshing to you know pick up a design magazine and look through it and see this very contemporary space with a mixture of classic and contemporary works on the walls and how they kind of communicated with each other. It was exciting. And now it's just everywhere, you know, and I'm kind of looking at it. It's like, oh, it's kind of like the shabby chic thing, you know, Mm. everybody's an abstract painter, you know, and, and I can look at them and go, and this person doesn't understand it at all, you know, and, uh, you know, I was looking at an artist on Instagram earlier today and I just kept looking and I know that she was successful but I kept looking at her work and saying, there's just nothing to it. You know, there's no depth there. There's nothing that tells me she knows how to do anything more than what she's doing. But, you know, she's found an audience and she's succeeding. And I kind of want to go back to that space where I'm looking at artists and going, that person has something unique and special and powerful and they're expressing it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, in my own work, I'm, you know, living here, looking out and seeing the landscape. It's bringing me back to the figurative uh, sort of foundations that I started on. But I don't want to go back there. I want to find a way to, you know, bring that to life in a way yeah. that, that makes that same statement that I described to other people. Mm-hmm. I just wonder, though, that, like, maybe is it not positive in a sense that people maybe they don't have as much depth to their taste or why they're buying art, but the fact that they're maybe less intimidated by it. I just feel like that's always been a pro like a, a veil up around the art world as people are always like, well, I don't know what this means or I don't know what this is or whatever. You know what I mean? But at least if people are venturing into it a little bit more, maybe they're buying work, maybe it's not the best work. Do you think that's a positive direction? It could be. You know, I, it could be. I mean, I know when I first started collecting, like, Russian icons, the first two that I bought were uh, 
I was so thrilled. I was like, wow, I got a Russian icon. And then like two years later, I thought, man, did I know, not know what I was doing when yeah, I bought yeah. this first Yeah, year. you got to start like, somewhere, right? I mean, yeah, collecting art yeah. or whatever. So, you know, if somebody wants to advance it, uh, that's great. Sometimes, though, I feel like people are just wanting to create a picture they have in their mind. And the art is just something that fits into that picture of like, oh, I've made it or I've moved into the space and, you know, it looks like HGTV or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. I, and I guess for what, what I'm trying to do is cultivate the people who are really looking for the depth, yeah. you know, and in, in what they want to collect. And they know there's something rich there. Mm-hmm. And it's more than just something they're going to... You know, I think my price point discourages a lot of those people anyway, you know. Actually, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, how you price your work. Like, how has that evolved over time? Because I feel like that's a huge thing for artists. I see a lot of artists pricing their work too low. They don't have the confidence or maybe the market can't bear high, higher prices seemingly. How did you gain the confidence to be able to price your work where it is. When I first started, I didn't know how to price my work. And I have the same fears I think most artists who haven't done it um, have, which is, you know, this fear of, of selling something for a lot less than it's worth or fear of pricing it so high that nobody wants to buy it. And you just don't know where that is. Yeah. You have nothing to base your price on. You know, and history, you know, of selling has a lot to do with how you price your work. But if you don't have it, you just don't know. And so some people approach me and say, well, how do I do it? And, and I think they're expecting me to say, well, if you're starting, you should be pricing your work in this price range. But I remember when I was going to have my first show and I needed to price my work, I was working with a mentor and he um, had me do this test. You know, I was saying, I don't know how to do it. And he was saying, well, you have to test it. And he said, ask yourself, what do I want to sell this painting for? And see what the first number that comes up in your head is. Don't, he said, don't judge it. Just let it come up. And then he said, and then you have to test it. And the test was really answering those two questions. Am I pricing it too high or too low? And so if you're asking yourself, I've set this price, let's say it was $1,000 for a piece. But if somebody offered me 800 how would I feel about that? Would I feel okay about accepting 800 And if the answer is yes set it at 800 because what you're trying to do is you're trying to eke every little penny you can out of yeah. work but then you have to run the other test it's let's say you say it's okay at, and and you set it at at 800 or or you say um or the answer is uh no I wouldn't then you know you know I wouldn't feel comfortable selling it at 800 then you know you don't, you don't want to price it below that so the next test is would I be willing to sell it for more and if you you are then raise it up you have to ask you have to uh, remove two things you have to remove whether you are trying to get everything you can out of that work or you're afraid somebody's not going to buy it because if you sell your work under either of those circumstances, you're going to feel bad about it. Mm. You know, and that's something he told me. He said, you don't want to sell something and feel like you took advantage of someone or they took advantage of you. You have to find that space where your own integrity says, I'm comfortable right here. And if somebody doesn't buy it, well, they weren't meant to have it because I don't want to go lower than this. Or, you know, they didn't buy it, but I wasn't trying to take advantage of them. And I, I wish I'd set it a little lower. I, I could have set it a little lower. If I'd done that, then maybe they would have bought it. Yeah. 
Um, that's the way I started pricing my work. It's just running that test. And that helped me kind of define the space. And it's different from one person to the other. It's about your own integrity, you know, about your, your own sense of worth. If you start in that space as you sell work, you'll know when it's time to raise the price. You'll know when you're selling a lot of work at a certain price point and you just feel like, you know what? You just, this instinct starts to tell you, I think if I raised it a couple hundred dollars, I, I could still sell it. You know, and then you raise it and you run that same test over. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I tell people because that's how I started. And then after that, you start to get the experience of selling and you, you know kind of what the market is valuing your work at. And, uh, you just start basing it around that. Mm-hmm. What kind of feedback do you get on your prices now, or do you get any pushback, or do you get people like asking for yeah, discounts? I mean, so, or? Some, yeah, there there are people that ask for discounts, and in general, I I incorporate a space, a sort of a cushion for discounting work, and I'm also willing, and I tell people, hey, if you're going to buy a lot of work that's you know very priced very high, I'm much more flexible on my price. Um, if you're just going to buy a small piece, I'm less flexible. And, uh, yeah. So are there other types of advice, like you're saying that you got from your mentor about pricing? Are there other things that you find yourself sharing with artists? I mean, do you have a artist ask you questions often? Not that often, surprisingly, hmm. you know, I've always put it out there that I'm, my door is open and I'm willing to answer questions. Yeah. You said that in the, after our, at the end of our last interview, did you have anyone take you up on that? I can't remember. I yeah. can't remember anybody taking me up on that. I did at my opening have some uh, young artists come up to me um, and just start talking about pricing and hmm. we went through this whole conversation. Yeah. So why do this Spectrum show after 10 years in Austin? Like, was all that work created over the last two years while you're building your house? Or? Yeah. No, I, I think I, I'd like to do a couple of events in Austin a year. Okay. One in my studio and then one outside. Or maybe two in my studio if I do, don't do another one outside. But I'd like to do a couple of events. And this was out of the box for me. And one of the problems I've had with galleries in Austin has been the conflicts that I have. You know, having developed a lot of an audience, you know, on my own and promoted my work and marketed it and relationships with interior designers and architects and that um, whenever I showed through a gallery, oftentimes I felt like they were benefiting from all the work I was doing rather than the other way around, you know? It's like, I always felt like I don't mind having a gallery represent me as long as I feel like they're delivering something. Yeah. And so uh, Kevin, who's the gallery director, Kevin Investor, we um, just had a conversation about that and we were able to, he was the one who put it out there, you know, an invitation to show there and just, you know, knew my concerns and we were able to work through those and in a way that where we were very clear on what I could do and um, I didn't feel like it was restricting me, but I didn't feel like I was not respecting what they were doing. Yeah. Would you mind talking about that work at all? You have paintings and then you also have constructs like yeah. how does it feel to see that work up like well it always feels good you know it always feels good to see the work up and shown and lit well and uh next to each other and where it's all communicating um having a dialogue from one painting to the next it's always really you know satisfying to see that and kevin had you know thrown some titles for the show across and he spectrum was one that he just he just sent me this email what do you think about this and i thought about it and i thought well god that that word can mean so many things and i think so many of them just apply to my work 
and the fact that we're, I was going to be showing a lot of work that had different series that um, were very different from each other, kind of worked with the, the idea of spectrum as a, a range of of ideas and then spectrum, the color spectrum, you know, yeah. which was very obvious. Um, I don't know. It was, I liked it as a title. So it worked really well with the, the work that I produced and put in there. Yeah. It was just, it was fun. There's something cohesive about all of it, but also it came as I was moving into the house. Yeah. And so a lot of the work was, I felt like I was still getting the feel for the new space and so I was trying this and getting excited about this and then moving over here and doing this and getting excited about that. And so I'll be interested to see the kind of show I produce when I've been here for a year mm. and really settled in, you know, and, and found kind of my work routine. Yeah. You know. I just have one more question about the show. And then I kind of wanted to see maybe what you're anticipating, where your work might go being in this space. But you're you have a self-portrait you have, I guess you said two self-portraits. You have one that's literally a portrait of you, a self-portrait, and then there's like a construct across from it that you said that we're in dialogue with each other. I wonder mm. if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Sure. Um, I've been commissioned to do portraits for people in my life, and um, more often than not, it was somebody I really loved, dear friend or something like that. And one of the um, failings of portraiture to me was knowing this person and painting this external, you know, representation of who they were and feeling like it failed in every way to show anybody who didn't know him the depth of who that person was, him or her. And so um, I've always kind of like been challenged by that. How do I give the viewer just a little piece that brings him in a little deeper. And I remember I did a portrait of a guy who was a, an older man. He was actually the first person that I ever sold an, a work of art to. And he hmm. and I would meet for lunch every Thursday. And we did this for like 15... We did it until he died, actually. Oh, wow. 15 years or so, maybe more. He asked me to do his portrait. And I painted his portrait. And I've scribbled into text in, around his image, you know, who he was and what he meant to me. And even that can be kind of esoteric to somebody who doesn't know him. But it was nice to feel like, oh, there's this this thing, you know, that puts a little more life in the portrait. And so there's there's been this challenge, you know, just a recognition of how complicated a person is. And that's one of the things that I didn't like about figurative painting in the end. I felt I was painting a lot of these very pretty women. But what did it mean, you know? I mean, I was always captivated by Vermeer's you know, girl with a pearl earring. You sort of project all sorts of stuff onto who she is, but you don't know her. You don't know anything about her, you know? History doesn't know anything about her. And so I just, I, I, I wanted to find a way to leave something that just brought somebody in a little deeper. And then I kind of gave up on that idea. I mean, my self-portrait was another commission. Somebody had commissioned that. So I painted it and I put this verbiage around the frame that kind of described what I believed about myself. And that was sort of a mystical thing. I think people could look at that and interpret it so many different ways. But again, a little more depth in the portrait. But I started looking at my constructs in a way as portraits, self-portraits. You know, why was I making these choices to do it this way, that way, that color, this shape? Believing that in some way I was putting down a code, you know, that nobody understood, including me, of who I was in that moment. 
you know, but I loved what it, what I ended up with was this three dimensional shape that just projected out of the wall that was very complicated. And I love that just as an icon of portraiture. It's like, that's, you know, depth. And I mean, physical depth in the piece, but depth in the character of the person is, is multi layers, you know, multi aspects of who this person is. And I just love that as an icon of portraiture. You know, I thought this is, I love this, you know, representing somebody in, in this way. That's not about their physical self at all. It's, it's more about a re- representation about the complexity of a person's character mm-hmm. and who they are. So I just finished a portrait too, which I'd love to kind of talk about. Yeah. Because I dealt with this as well. I, uh, the owner of Fonda San Miguel, which is a really fine, fine uh, Mexican restaurant here in Austin. And they have an incredible art collection. I don't know if you've ever been there. No. You should go. It's a wonderful restaurant. The food is great, but the art collection is great. It, the restaurant is a work of art. And um, the owner had commissioned me years ago to paint a portrait of the chef. And the portrait's hanging in the restaurant now. And years and years and years later, he asked me to do his portrait. So he wanted himself painted in a way that nobody recognized him. Hmm. And so I agreed to that under the influence of alcohol. <laughs> okay. So the next day I was like, no, oh, what did I agree to? And uh, how, how was, was I going to work that out? We were both under the influence. And I remember <laughs> him telling me at one point saying, I want you to give me five eyes and six noses. And, you know, so, and I was just going, yes, you know, swigging the margaritas. And, and the next day I was like, man, how am I going to do this? I've never done anything like this. And so, um, yeah, I kind of agonized over it for a few months and then I actually started working and what I ended, ended up doing was taking several photographs that I had of had shot of him and overlaying them and um, it took me a year to finish this thing hmm. but when it was done it just felt so good I mean it just looked so wonderful and again it was the idea that there's more to this person than just this simple image and the people who knew him just that's him you know all these wow you know, overlapping. It's like multifaceted. Yeah, multifaceted and, and uh, complex and creative. You know, they thought that the, the portrait was really creative. And this guy's kind of the, you know, the one who has really created that restaurant as a creative space. It literally is a work of art. And the food is a work of art. And the art on the walls is a work of art. And the camaraderie that you experience there is a work of art. And so how how is I going to create portrait that measured up to all that you know so that's kind of what drives portraiture for me and and those two pieces that you described Mm -hmm. and you know just as a plug i you know i think people if you haven't gone to see the show it's a great show and it's up till the 22nd so you should go see it yeah absolutely it's beautiful so where do you do you have any idea or kind of are anticipating kind of where you see your work going in this new space? No, I am in this real laboratory state of mind. So I'm kind of producing what I know works for me. And again, that's the the income part of this, you know, and the people respond with they love it. So I'm producing that. And in the meantime, I'm experimenting and exploring it and letting myself be lost, you know, mm. right now. And that's how I feel in a lot of ways. I feel lost in a good way, you know, um, and okay with that. And so I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. But I, I have I'm so much inspiration. I'm always like, oh, you should do that. 
and you should do that. Try that. Try that one. Mm. And and then I have pieces where they're started but not finished because I'm not sure where I want to take them to the next space. You know, it's, it's not clear to me. And again, like I said, I just moved in. Coming from the construction, which was so demanding, um, not that I was building the space, but, you know, my attention you know, was so pulled into this, making all these decisions. And, you know, I, there were aspects of it that I was building and then dealing with a lot of the subcontractors because my builder got sick at one point for several months, you know, that, mm. and I had to kind of handle things. I just felt so scattered when I finally moved in. I, I felt like I didn't know who I was, you know. Wow. And because my routine of being an artist was so interrupted. And I lived in a little... Uh, you know, I, I sold my home to finish building this house, and um, as soon as I could, moved out of my studio in Bee Caves. So my creative space was just up in the air. Yeah, you were in limbo. Yeah, and so I was building constructs in the shop, but wasn't really doing it legally yet. And the studio upstairs, we try to make that as usable as quickly as possible. It wasn't finished by any means, but we had windows. And we put a door on it, and, you know, there was no flooring. But I was working in there, and then the builder would come in and say, well, you got to get out for three weeks because they're going to be doing this. And then I didn't have a workspace. Yeah. And, and this went on. I mean, just on. And uh, it was so disorienting. Mm-hmm. You know, so coming coming in here and just going, I know exactly what I want to do. It was, I was literally recovering myself, you know. So I just had a better sense of who I was, which I feel like I'm still doing. But more so, you know, where I'm feeling more creative and more inspired, you know, where it's less about the exhaustion of what I went through and more about like, oh, I'm feeling more myself. I'm resting more. I'm feeling stronger, you know. I wonder if there isn't an opportunity in a space like that to reinvent parts of yourself or choose to do something differently, think of something differently. I'm I'm just wondering, like, are there... I mean, we've talked about a few of them, just like beliefs that you've changed or could have changed, you may maybe want to change or have changed in the mm-hmm. last two years going through this limbo and this kind of losing yourself, you know? I mean, yeah. it seems like there's an opportunity there. Or I wonder how that's felt. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I feel I feel like I'm so in the middle of it now, it's hard to get an objective view yeah, of what's yeah. happening, you know? It's like being in a storm and not that it's a storm, but, or feeling like you just got out of a storm and Mm -hmm. you're just kind of, nothing looks familiar anymore, you know? So, but like I said, I just feel okay being there. I think it's okay to be in a space of feeling lost, you know, at points in your life. That's actually a great space to be. Mm. So, um, try not to have solutions or plans with specific outcomes, or anxiety about it. <laughs> well, I that I try. I don't know that I do that very well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I listened to our interview, our last interview over again, and it, it gave me a few questions. One I had written down, because you were talking about finding your power, feeling empowered as an artist. I'm wondering if there's anything you could share about that that... I think a lot of artists probably struggle with feeling their own power. Because you were talking about how... When you get to a certain point where you were, you had more power to where galleries couldn't mm-hmm. push you around as much, or you mm-hmm. had, you could do more of the things that you wanted. 
I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that personal empowerment as an artist, like if people feel like they don't have that, or maybe you don't feel like you have that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when you're feeling lost, it's hard to feel personally empowered, you know, um, I, I feel glimpses of it because it's like a familiar thing, but it's been a while, you know, because of the distraction of building this space and everything that it took. So again, I feel like as I recover my physical strength and my sense of connection and my connection to this space, you know, each time I feel a little more of that familiarity. Oh, I, that person, I'm starting to recognize him again. But right now I feel a little disoriented, you know, yeah. and uh, maybe real disoriented sometimes and maybe not so much, you know, but definitely there are times when I feel very disoriented. Yeah, I don't know how to respond to that. I, I just think it's um, in my life, it's been something that ebbs and flows. I mean, is it interesting at all that we're talking in this moment? I mean, how does that feel to be sharing where you are right now? I actually felt kind of unsure about this whole interview. Oh, yeah. Because I thought, man, you were in a space where you're not you're not certain about a lot of things, mm. you know. And I like to I like to feel confident. I know the last interview I felt much more connected and and confident. And uh, that control part of me wants to control how people see me. Yeah. And I think that's part of the new thing for me is that I, I want to be more vulnerable. We've talked about that yeah, in the last yeah. interview too. And they, I was so tempted at times just just call Scott up and say can we postpone this for six months? You know, maybe I'll not tell you, maybe I'll know myself a little better then. Um, But I said, no, you got to do this just the way you are and how you are, you know? And Mm. so uh, it doesn't feel uncomfortable, but it does feel, I guess it does feel uncomfortable in the vulnerability that I'm expressing right now. Yeah. Yeah. Because in my life, you know, going through the kind of childhood I went through, I wanted people to think I was a strong person all the time. Yeah. You know, and it's hard to feel that vulnerable space where I'm just not sure I don't have the answers, you know. Mm-hmm. One thing I do like, though, is that I look back on who I've been my whole life and, and go, yeah, you've been here before, but you always found your way. You know, I, I'm 58 now, and so I've got a lot of history behind me. And I can look back and say, how many times have you been here? You always found your way. I mean, and, and then I get excited, I think, and that's that's the exciting thing is finding your way. You know, yeah. it's like talking about trying to figure out social media and how, how, how to really use it to my advantage now. It's kind of like this excitement. Oh, I don't know this. Or songwriting. We talked about songwriting. It's nice to have this art that I'm pursuing that I don't do as easily as yeah, I do. Right. That. It's nice because I feel like that. You've got to figure this out. But the fun is figuring it out, you know. Yeah. So, well, you mentioned your health and how you've, this has been a probably a physically demanding process building this house. I'm just wondering if part of your health or part of the thing that you think about, do you ever, do you still think about cancer much? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe a month before I moved in here, I developed this like pain in my chest in a very specific point and I started coughing and Mm. I went to the doctor and they couldn't figure it out and we did x-rays and looked fine and but it wasn't going away and I mean the first thing I thought literally when I first felt that first pain was oh shit is that cancer you know Mm. just right away so I I think that's probably something that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Yeah. And there were moments, I mean, this was a process. It took a long time uh, before we finally, it appears we figured out, and, and it appears that I've developed asthma in my hmm. later years. 
But, um, you know, there were points where I was really worried. I mean, I, I, we, you know, we'd done all these things and we were going to do a CT scan and I was just thinking, oh my God, it's going to come back. It's going to be positive. I've, I've, I'm going to have cancer. And that same terror and fear that I felt yeah. when I was first diagnosed came up. But then it didn't, you know, it turned out to be something different. And, you know, I have other friends who are cancer survivors and I'd call them up and they'd like, they get it. You know, they go, oh, yeah. Yeah, every little thing that comes up, you're going to think it's cancer. Hmm. And so it's there, you know, it's there, it's just a reality. And I, I think part of it is just, oh, God, it was so hard what I went through that I just, I'm terrified of having to go through it again, you know. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's not something that rules my life, you know. It's just when something happens like that, I don't take it for granted, you know. I, I immediately call a doctor and want to rule out cancer. Yeah. You know, it was like, oh, I'm so grateful. It's just asthma. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, Can Which, you believe that? I wow. mean, I really was. It was relief. Oh, it's just asthma. Oh, wait a minute. It's asthma. What am I doing with asthma? You know? That's weird. Yeah, I grew up with asthma. I still have it. Yeah. That's, that's a hard thing, for sure. So, you know, you had shared, having gone through your cancer experience, um, that one of your goals was to figure out how to love more deeply mm-hmm. how is that going i think it's going well um how do, what does that look in, like what in, does that feel like well i think it's being more vulnerable you know definitely like this when yeah. when the voice in me says don't do this <laughs> yeah do it you right. know it's going well but i think it's also one of those things that's been affected by the whole process right of the construction i was gonna, I wasn't gonna say I, I keep waiting for the moment where things kind of just stabilize and then i think ah i can just focus on the luxury of this but um yeah. I, yeah I almost feel like it's a weird question to ask you like how does that loving more deeply going <laughs> but yeah. I guess I just want to try to understand like I mean I just think that's such a profound lesson to come out of thinking that you were going to die and it's something that I aspire to it's like appreciating every moment appreciating every person in your yeah. life like you were saying it's like how are you going to remember that moment did you go as far as you wanted to? Or did you I think, open as much as you wanted to? You know, we discussed that sort of sort of self-philosophy I have. About, yeah. Like, every moment I'm creating is something I'm going to have to live over and over in yeah. for eternity. Whether that's true or not, I like the idea because it forces me to look at the moment. I think I that is incorporating itself more and more deeply into my life where I ask myself about the moment I'm creating and how do I feel about it and and what could I you know if I'm thinking well it's kind of a mediocre mediocre moment what could I do to make it a little special um, and then doing that um, I'm finding that just to be more part of my thought process which mm-hmm. is nice you know it's not something that I came up with and was there for a while and then it just kind of faded you know it's something that I think has really incorporated itself into who I am and how I live my life. I wonder if that also, maybe that connects to just being more loving and accepting of these limbo, vulnerable kind of lost moments. Yeah. I mean, that's a form of loving yourself or just think, kind of acceptance. I think that's it. Self-love. You know, I think that's the thing that I've had to really practice in the last year, you mm. know, because at times I feel really overwhelmed and frustrated and, and I just have to feel some sort of compassion for person who's going through all that stuff Mm. and so it's been something that i've i've had to practice a lot of in this space so it seems like this has really been been a personal growth experience and on many levels 
it's really strange. It's I I've connected to this sense of like um, how critical it is for me to change many aspects of my life. You know, and I talked about building this space to kind of move my art into the next level. It's kind of like building this space because I need to move my entire life into the next level. You know, yeah. it's just been a sort of oh, I want to say a wake up and an, and an awakening to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and that really feels true for me of moving into this space. It's just this awareness of like, yeah, I don't want to carry that aspect of my character any further. You know, mm. it's kind of done its deal, and I'm done with that. And and then going, oh, it's over here too, and there, and there, and there. I mean, it's in the food I eat, and you know, you know how I kind of procrastinate at times. And not that there's anything wrong with procrastination. It's how I procrastinate. You know, yeah. it is it useful? You know, just looking at it and going, God, it's 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 in the things I buy. You know, going. Why am I doing that? You know, I, I was talking to you earlier about how I've been selling some of my guitars. And I, w- I was obsessed with guitars. I built, you know, seven Stratocasters and two Telecasters and a Jazzmaster and a P-Bass. And I mean, I love doing it. But in the end, I'm like, what am I doing with all these things? And that time, yeah, you know, it's just kind of... Um, and the irony is I've moved into this really large space that would more than easily accommodate it all. <laughs> right. And I'm actually wanting less because I lived Mm. in this small apartment for a year. And the one thing I learned in that apartment was how little I actually needed to be happy, you know, except the apartment was too small. I needed more space for sure. (laughs) But, you know, I had one guitar out and I'd play it and that was fine. And, you know, I had four really good acoustic guitars and I'm just kind of like, then the hurt, you know, give it to somebody else who's really willing to use it. And there was a, I don't know, just a wastefulness you know, and that's what I'm looking at now in so many ways, wastefulness in time and money in energy. And, and I just feel like this space is calling me to live on a higher level than that, you know, mm, to make different choices. Yeah. Well, do you, is there anything else you want to, do you want to talk about music and songwriting at all? Or uh, no, not no. really. Okay. Yeah. I love it. I love doing it. I love playing it. You know, you t- asked about loving. To me, that's something I've done quietly to myself and not really shown people my songs. I have a few friends that I trust that I'll play yeah. music. But um, I've been wanting to, you know, play for people more. And so a, a friend will come in and I'll go, oh, let me play a song. And I'll just pick up the guitar and play something. And they're like, wow, didn't know you did that, you know. And so, and that's part of it for me, the vulnerability, you know, that mm. expression but, uh, but doing it in a loving way for the person I'm with, saying, I want to play a song for you because uh, because I want you to hear that deeper part of who I am, you know? Yeah. So that's something that's showing up in songwriting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is neat. I think the thing I love about songwriting is that it's so separate from my art, and it's not a business. There's zero financial incentive for for me. It's It's actually a... A money right. pit is what it is. <laughs> yeah, the workshops and the workshops, the, the instruments. And, you know, yeah. you saw my recordings to you. It's it's you know costs yeah. some money, and I I just love doing it. And truly, when I offer it to someone else, it's literally a gift. You know, it's and that's all it is. It's it's nothing else. It's it's kind of neat mm. to have that. And maybe that's where a lot of this stuff is showing up. You know, the art thing is kind of working itself out. The painting. 
you know, there's the mix of marketing and, and uh, creativity, and I haven't found my footing there yet. Hmm. But that thing's been the same. And it didn't, take, it didn't take a lot to pick up a guitar and just start playing, you know, and just pick up where I left off. Yeah. You know, no intentions. So. so interesting to think about, like, the different levels of, like, let's say you have someone who aspires to be an artist and they have a day job, and then they do their art on the side, and then you're an artist who that's their job, I guess. And then they have a th- the next level of thing on the side. That's, yeah. that's not necessarily providing any sustenance, but it's mm-hmm. just a passion. I don't know. I just thought there's like, there's different levels that you maybe work up. Yeah. There's a French painter named Ang I N G R E S. Very strange way to pronounce that. And I may have gotten it wrong, but um, there's a saying that in, in France is viol de Ang, I think is what it is. And he loved playing the violin. So he was very famous as a neoclassical painter back in the 1700s, I think, or maybe early 1800s or something like that. But he was very famous. But he had this passion. He loved to play his fiddle. And so um, when somebody's talking to about their passion that they kind of do on the side, like what I do with the guitar, it's called the viol de ang. And I would say that's what this is for me. It's kind of mm. the thing that I do. And it's not the thing I'm known for, but it's just kind of the thing I do because I love to do it. You know? Yeah. You feeling anything else? Do you want to? No, are I you good? I think we're here. Okay. Yeah, well, watch the beautiful sunset. Yeah, this is oh such a gorgeous setting. Thank you so much for um, your time and for everything you shared. I really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Take care.